my tribute to Elvis. From the sun years of the 50s and the birth of rock and roll Millions screamed to see him do his thing Elvis touched the life of every ear that heard him They couldn't help but listen when he sang It's a long way from Memphis to that mansion in the sky but he kept his faith in Jesus all along It's a long way from Graceland Across Jordan to the Promised Land But Jesus finally came to lead him home This is Our American Stories And you're listening to Merle Haggard And his tribute to Elvis Presley And the crew was talking the other day About songs inspired by Elvis Presley And we were just... Yeah, we were just goofing off and started rattling it off the songs and thought, let's do an hour on the songs that were made as a tribute to or were thinking about Elvis Presley. And my goodness, well, you're going to enjoy this. Let's go back, though, to Merle Haggard and take a listen to his. Of the day. It's a long way from Memphis to that mansion in the sky, but he kept his faith in Jesus all along. It's a long way from Graceland across Jordan to the Promised Land. But Jesus finally came to lead him home. It's a long way from Memphis to that mansion in the sky. But he kept his faith in Jesus all along. It's a long way from Graceland across Jordan to the Promised Land. Finally came to lead him home. And that song is called From Graceland to the Promised Land, and it was released in October of 1977. The only single from the album My Farewell to Elvis. That was the actual title of the album. And that's the impact that the king of rock and roll had on a country rebel like Merle Haggard. And by the way, that charted at number four on the Billboard Hot Country Singles and Tracks chart. Not bad. And let's take somebody, well, I'll never forget the first time I ever saw this man at Madison Square Garden. I took my mother, because she was a big fan. And Bruce Springsteen kicked off the first show he ever did at Madison Square Garden with Heartbreak Hotel. This is a song, though, that Bruce wrote in honor of Elvis. It's called Johnny Bye Bye. It was on the non-album B-side of a Bruce Springsteen track from 1985. The title is an homage to Chuck Berry's Bye Bye Johnny, but this stripped-down Born in the USA outtake is about Elvis Presley. It was the B-side, by the way, to I'm on Fire. Springsteen was devastated by Elvis's death in 1977. The song took three years to write. Bruce said this, The type of fame Elvis had, the pressure of it, the isolation that it almost seems to require... It's got to be really painful. Let's take a listen to Bruce's very short and really beautiful Johnny Bye Bye. One, two, three. 
Pessy drew out all her money from a southern trust And put her little boy on a greyhound bus Leaving Memphis with a guitar in his hand On a one-way ticket to the promised land But hey, little girl with the red dress on It's a party tonight down in Memphis town I'll be going down there if you need a ride A man on the radio says And that was the impact Elvis had on almost everybody. John Lennon talked about the impact that Elvis had. By the way, we looked it up. Elvis, more than any any other musician, had songs written about him. 220 that we could count. I'm sure there are more. I mean, it's hard to actually grab all these things, but we did our best. 220 songs. We're going to bring you some of our favorites, the ones that we listened to, figured you might want to listen to. We're going to go out in this segment with a song called We Remember the King. And it was performed by a couple of pretty good guys, Johnny Cash, Jerry Lee Lewis, Roy Orbison, and Carl Perkins. In an all-star tribute to Elvis, Johnny Cash sings the lead from the 1986 reunion Class of 55. This was a TV special and subsequent CD. As a Lies o'er the mountain How we wish we were there at its wing Closer by far to a friend we have lost We remember the king We remember We remember we recall, we recall everything We will treasure all of the gifts that he did bring We remember the king This is Our American Stories, songs about Elvis for the hour Let's go back to the class of 55. And when shadows fall in the valley To that precious memory we cling Like a spark that ignites And his flame still shines bright As we remember
is our American story. Songs about Elvis. We were just jawboning and started talking about our favorite songs about Elvis one day, and the list started getting pretty long. We looked it up. There were 220 altogether that we could find. We culled through about 40 of them, and for the hour, we're going to play our favorites and hopefully yours, and some you might not have ever heard before. That Johnny Bye Bye by Bruce Springsteen. A lot of people don't know that song. Bruce played it throughout that tour, the Born in the USA tour, uh, with an explanation, by the way, that was just beautiful. And now let's go to a song called Black Velvet, recorded by Canadian singer-songwriter Alana Miles, released in December of 1989 on Atlantic Records. It became a number one hit for two weeks on the Billboard Hot 100 charts in 1990 and reached number one on the album Rock Charts. And Miles won the 1991 Grammy for Best Rock Vocal Performance, Female, for the song, and the 1990 Juno Award for the Single of the Year. Since its release, the song has received substantial airplay, receiving a Millionaire Award from ASCAP in 2005 for more than 4 million radio plays. As you're listening, you're thinking, I've always known that song. I sort of thought it was about Elvis, but now I really know it's about Elvis. Let's return back to Black Velvet.
And next up, and I had the luck, one of the lucky times in my life. I was at a, a friend's home around Nashville. I was doing a show with Laura Ingram at the time nationally. We were doing well in Nashville, and a, a friend of ours said, hey, you got to come over to our house. We have this songwriter's roundtable uh, every like Wednesday night, and come on by. And my goodness, uh, Kix Brooks were there, was there, and Paul Simon was there. So I thought, wow, what kind of a round table is this, and why can't I come more often? And they all started playing each other's songs, and somebody asked Paul Simon what the best song was he ever wrote, and my goodness, did he write great songs. And he didn't hesitate. He took out his acoustic guitar, and I'd never listened to this song the way I listened to it that night. It was Graceland. of this song to you because they're so startling and how he sets this song up is remarkable and the reason this song is a song about Elvis is because in the end this man the narrator in this song has just gone through a cataclysmic divorce and here's how the song starts and by the way he's gone through a cataclysmic divorce and he wants some kind of absolution and so he packs up his boy and he goes on a road trip to Graceland the Mississippi Delta was shining like a national guitar I'm following the river down the highway through the cradle of the Civil War. I'm going to Graceland. Graceland in Memphis, Tennessee. I'm going to Graceland. Poor boys and pilgrims with families. We're all going to Graceland. And then he gets into the next 
stanza and verse. My traveling companion is nine years old. He's the child of my first marriage. But I have reason to believe we both will be received in Graceland. By the way, this is a Jewish writer using Christian language and going on a pilgrimage of, of a sorts looking for redemption of some kind. And here's the killer, killer lines in this song. I mean, it had everybody in that room startled. It was so good. He's now talking about his wife, who's leaving him or has announced she's leaving to him. She comes back to tell me she's gone. What a great line. She comes back to tell me she's gone, as if I didn't know that, as if I didn't know my own bed, as if I'd never noticed the way she brushed her hair from her forehead. And she said, Losing love is like losing a window in your heart. Everybody sees you're blown apart. Everybody sees the wind blow. And back to the chorus. I'm going to Graceland, Memphis, Tennessee. This is what Elvis inspired in folks. And he brought the most unlikely people, religious, ethnic, together. Go to Graceland sometimes. You'll see it. From everywhere, from all around the world, they come. Let's go out with Paul Simon. stories for the hour songs about Elvis there were over 200 written and this is Elton John's it's called Port it's called Porch Swing in Tupelo and of course Tupelo is the birthplace of Elvis and that's only an hour away from where we broadcast here in Oxford Mississippi 
and about an hour south of Memphis, where Elvis perched and built his family and life at Graceland. And this song was written in 2004 for an album called Peachtree Road, named after Peachtree Road, the northern part of Peachtree Street in Atlanta, where one of Elton John's four homes is located. This is the only album during his long career on which John alone has sole credit as producer. Let's go back to Elton John's porch swing in Tupelo. Next up, a guy named Mark Knopfler. And by the way, we learned that Mark Knopfler was called in by Jerry Wexler to work on Bob Dylan's first Christian record. Well, here's Mark Knopfler and Dire Straits is Calling Elvis. Building. 
This song, Calling Elvis, first appeared on the final studio album by the band. And that album was on every street in 1991. Again, Dire Straits and Mark Knopfler. It was released as the first single from that album, peaking at number 21 in the United Kingdom. The song is about an Elvis fan who believes Elvis Presley still may be alive, making reference to many of his songs, including, as you heard, Heartbreak Hotel, Love Me Tender, Don't Be Cruel, Return to Sender, as well as the expression, Elvis has left the building. Mark Knopfler has been quoted as saying the idea came to him one day when he left his phone off the hook and his brother-in-law tried repeatedly to get a hold of him. Upon finally doing so, the brother-in-law remarked, Mark was harder to get a hold of than Elvis. Let's return to Dire Straits. This is Our American Stories, and by the way, if you ever get a chance to pick up any old Dire Straits records, particularly Love Over Gold, it's just so interesting. This is back when people made records and you could actually hear bands and musicians play and play and play. My goodness, it doesn't get better often than that band that Mark Knopfler assembled called Dire Straits. We're celebrating songs about Elvis today for the hour. It was a lark when it started. We kept digging into it, and we kept finding good material and actually surprising ourselves, and that's why we bring it to you. Over 220 songs written about the king, about Elvis Presley. And when we come back, the final two, one by you 2 and one... Well, we're not going to tell you the other one. More after these messages.
This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to ZZ Top's cover of Eva Las Vegas. For the hour, we're going to be doing covers. Well, that's another hour. Covers of Elvis Presley. This is a cover. But this hour is all about songs about Elvis Presley, about Graceland. And our final two are upon us. And the first one up, well, this band wouldn't have been a band, I think, without Elvis and without America. And their signature album, Joshua Tree, well, it couldn't have been possible without the American landscape uh, and without, well, the American dream, because that's at the heart of it. And this Irish band wrote a song about Elvis. Let's take a listen. That song is A Room at the Heartbreak Hotel. It was released as a single in December 1988 with the song Angel of Harlem. By the way, Angel of Harlem was itself a tribute to Billie Holiday. And of course, in the name of love, pride, a tribute to Martin Luther King. This Irish band relating to these seminal black and white artists. And these were race artists in the end. Elvis surely was. By the way, the key lyrics in that, very hard to hear with all the reverb. I see the stars in your eyes. You want the truth, but you need the lies. Like Judy Garland, like Valentino, you gave your life for rock and roll. And I think all these guys understand Elvis' loneliness, his isolation, and what fame means, because they ultimately all experienced it themselves, except Elvis was so much bigger than anybody else. And I urge anybody who ever gets the chance to come into Memphis and do the tour 
We should actually do an Our American Stories music tour and do Memphis and Muscle Shoals and Nashville. And it's extraordinary. And, of course, get down into the Delta a little bit, down into Clarksdale and some of the places Jesse ventured around to when he was searching for the crossroads. One of our favorite hours we've done here on Our American Stories where Jesse went and investigated where exactly and which crossroads did Robert Johnson sell his soul to the devil. We didn't ever really found out which crossroad it was. So many people claimed that it was their crossroads around the Mississippi Delta. And the last song, well, I think this is just hands down the winner because it's just such a perfect song. And not many people have a song that almost anybody who'd think about that person's catalog would almost all say, that's his best song. And even the songwriter, well, he says the same thing about this song. And his name is Mark Cohn. By the way, Cohn, as you remember, was held up in a terrible uh, carjacking and shot in the head. And so one of the reasons you haven't heard about this career, well, it's he endured a really life-altering incident that changed his career, his life. He's alive, uh, but my goodness, getting shot in the head because he didn't surrender the keys to his, his SUV fast enough, well, that'll change your life. The song is Walking in Memphis, and it's a, it's a song he composed and originally recorded uh, way back in the, in the late 1980s. He described it as a song about a Jewish gospel music lover and as a, quote, pretty literal transcription of a visit I made in 1986. He said, I went to Graceland. I heard Al Green preach the gospel. I saw W.C. Handy's statue. But the song is about more than just one place in the end, he said. It's about a kind of spiritual awakening, one of those trips where you're different when you leave. By the way, those are the best kind of trips you can ever take with your family. I mean, it's nice to go to the beach, but I'll never forget my dad taking me down the Natchez Trace straight down to Vicksburg, and we were doing Civil War battlefield tours. And you want to make history come alive, go to the Vicksburg Civil War Museum and then go over that hill and see where the troops were nestled. And as they starved out the Confederate soldiers and families living in Vicksburg, history comes to life. It's not boring. And so with that, songs about Elvis Presley, and this is our favorite, Mark Cohn's Walking in Memphis. Put on my blue suede shoes and I boarded the plane Touched down in the land of the Delta Blues In the middle of the pouring rain W.C. Handy, won't you look down over me? Yeah, I got a first-class ticket, but I'm as blue as a boy can be. Then I'm walking in Memphis, just walking with my feet ten feet off a beam. Walking in Memphis, but do I really feel the way I feel? Saw the ghost of Elvis on Union Avenue Followed him up to the gates of Graceland And I watched him walk right through 
Now security they did not see him They just hover around his tomb But there's a pretty little thing Waiting for the king Down in the jungle room When I was walking in Memphis I was walking with my feet Ten feet off a beam Walking in Memphis On the table, they've got gospel in the air. River and green, be glad to see you when you haven't got a prayer. But boy, you got a prayer in Memphis. Every Friday at the Hollywood And they brought me down to see her And they asked me if I would Do a little number And I sang with all my might She said, tell me are you a Christian child? And I said, ma'am I am tonight And there you have it, walking in Memphis. I love the lines, catfish on the table, gospel in the air. And that's the, that's the ambiance in which Elvis grew up, wrote, and came a man. And some of you are Christian, and ma'am, I am tonight, maybe one of the great one-liners in the history of music. Mark Cohen, walking in Memphis, our favorite Songs about Elvis for the hour. There were 220. This was number one. Put on my blue suede shoes and I boarded the plane. Touched down in the land of the Delta Blues in the middle of the pouring rain. Touched down in the land of the Delta Blues in the middle of the pouring This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we love stories of seemingly ordinary Americans doing utterly extraordinary things. And this is exactly what Ed Kondrat from Michigan did, driving 1,200 miles on no sleep into the danger zone of Hurricane Irma to evacuate his aunt. Let's hear a little from Ed about his aunt. My Aunt Mary is a very self-sufficient woman at 99 years old. I mean, yes, she does have her senior moments, but... All in all, she's been pretty independent for, my, my uncle Paul died in ninth or 2000, so she's been around her own for 17 years. She lives in a uh, 
her home in Arcadia, Florida. Uh, she drove a car up until she was 95, and the only reason she quit driving was the fact that she told me, it's not that I can't drive, Edward. She said, it's just the fact that if I ever did get an accident, they're going to blame the old lady, and I don't want that to happen. So uh, <laughs> that's how she gave up driving. In 2017, Ed and his Aunt Mary both saw Hurricane Irma closing in on Florida, and Ed decided that he couldn't stay in Michigan while his Aunt Mary was in the path of a massive hurricane. You know, I've been watching the hurricane a little bit, and I was kind of afraid, but I called her, and she goes, I was just trying to call you. And she said that, I'm really worried about Hurricane Irma. And I said, well, Aunt Mary, I said, uh, I am also. I said, it's supposedly going to be a Category 5, which, as we well know, it's absolutely devastating. So I said, it's Wednesday today. I said, I'm going to get in the car tomorrow after work, and I'm coming down to pick you up. And she kind of hemmed and hawed. She said, you really want to do that? And I said, absolutely, I'm going to do it, because I'm telling you, you're not going to survive this thing if it's, if it's a direct hit. And at the time, uh, we really didn't know where it was going. They had originally said that it was going to uh, hit Miami first and then kind of go up the east. But for some reason, it took the west coast, and it was Naples was going to be a direct hit. And she lives in Arcadia, which is like it needed to be done. So I got off of work. I, I came home real quick, took a quick shower. My wife had already gone to bed, so I just jumped in the car. I told my son, I'm leaving. I went up to the local, uh, uh, we have a Meyer store here, which is open 24 hours, so I went in there, I bought six five-gallon gas cans, because I knew there was going to be a gas shortage, so I filled those up, put them in the car, bought a case of water, and off I went. So I drove 20 hours straight to pick her up, to get her the heck out of Dodge, so to speak. And as I got to the Florida line, I began to get extremely worried. Uh, it was bumper to bumper for close to 50 to 75 miles as I headed into Florida, and I thought to myself, how on earth are we ever going to get out of here? So I was having a little bit of an anxiety attack as I went down, because <laughs> I was really I was not only concerned for her, but I'm concerned for myself also, because I have a family that I need to help support. And so I finally got there. It was about 10 o'clock at night. She had packed a few things, uh, you know, just basic stuff that just to get her through. She did take some jewelry that she was concerned of and basically the shirt on her back and something to sleep in. And um, I got there, and she was kind of apprehensive. She says, you really think I need to leave? And she started worrying about all of her possessions there. And I said, Aunt Mary, I hate to be brutally honest with you, but if you're dead, it really won't matter all the possessions you have. So I said, we need to go. So she said, okay, I'll go, but I want you to get a little bit of rest. I was just running on adrenaline at that point because I had driven 20 hours straight to get to her. So I took about a, no, I actually didn't really take a nap. I laid down and I was tossing and turning, but got up at 1 o'clock in the morning and I said to her, I said, we need to go. I filled the car up with gas there uh, because there was no gas anywhere uh, below Tampa at that point. So we got in the car and took off at 1 o'clock in the morning. We, at that point, kind of struggled to get back to where we wanted to get to the expressway because I wasn't quite sure how the traffic was going to be even at that time of the morning. But we were able to find our way to Tampa, and I was able to fill up at a gas station there, and then we got on the 75, and believe it or not, the traffic was absolutely light because at that time of the morning, 
most of the traffic that couldn't get through the Florida line yesterday had stopped at the rest stops and they were still sleeping. So it was like a direct uh, hit right all the way through Florida. We were fine. But <laughs> this is when the fun began. When we got about 20 miles outside of Atlanta, the crux of all the traffic hit, and it took us six hours to get through the Atlanta region. And let me tell you, that was a nightmare because it was stop and go, and we almost got ran into about three times from people trying to switch lanes and not paying attention and traffic stopping immediately. And I was just, at one point, one car, I don't know, it seemed as if God had literally put his hand down and stopped this car because as I was looking in my rearview mirror, I honestly didn't think that I was going to survive without a direct hit. But the car stopped about an inch away, no damage was done, and off we went. So at that point, I had been, I'm gone going on probably, what, uh, 35 hours with no sleep. So I'm really feeling <laughs> like I need a place to stay. We had stopped at a rest stop, and I made a reservation at a hotel uh, in Chattanooga. But it turned out that when I thought about it, see, my aunt at 99... Uh, uses a walker and she can't do steps very well so it needed to be on the first floor and I forgot to ask that and as I got closer I said well I better inquire because I'm not going to be able to get her up to the second floor so as I called unfortunately it was on the second floor so I didn't we didn't have a hotel so the closest hotel we could find was in Athens Tennessee and we, we stopped it was you know late at night and she had one room left Fortunately, we were able to get that room, and I was able to get uh, a good six, seven hours sleep. Uh, we got back into the car in the morning, and we traveled straight to our beautiful home here in Birmingham, Michigan. We had asked Ed if he ever had second thoughts about driving 1,200 miles over 20 hours into a hurricane that most everyone else was fleeing from. You, you do what you think is right, that's all. I mean, <laughs> the poor woman's 99 years old, she's got nobody, and I'm it, so... It, it really was a no-brainer. <laughs> well, Aunt Mary stayed with Ed, his wife, and their 19-year-old son for a little bit. Ed said, quote, The teenager will have to sleep on the couch for a few weeks. We'll make do. Family's family. Soon thereafter, Mary wanted to go back home, and what did Ed do? Got back in that car, drove 1,200 miles back to Arcadia, Florida. It's just what Americans do. Ed Condrat's story, Aunt Mary's story, here on Our American Stories. Riders on the storm Riders on the storm Into this house we're born And this is Our American Stories, and we talk about everything here on this show, from the arts to music to sports and, of course, history. We love talking about history, but we also love talking to Heidi Mitchell at the Wall Street Journal because we love her regular feature there, The Burning Question. And this last burning question, what's the best way to take an afternoon nap, had us all puzzling. And Heidi, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Now, Heidi, begin begin with things simple. Are you a napper? Uh, so there are three types of people. There's those who can just fall asleep 
like on a train standing up. There's people who, who like to take a nap and can take a nap. And then there's people like me who say there's just no scenario in which I could fall asleep during the day. <laughs> yeah, you're my wife. She can't ever fall asleep. I, my wife says I'm not a napper. I'm a narcoleptic. I can fall asleep. Right. <laughs> I can just dead fall asleep anywhere when I'm tired. So I don't know yeah. that I'm a napper. I just I just fall asleep. So I fall in that first category. Tell us about who you talk to about this thing called napping, Heidi. So I talked to a guy called David Dingis, who is a professor at Penn at the Perlman School of Medicine. He's written a book on this stuff. He's a, a real expert, and he was really deep in the weeds. It was a great conversation. He has lots of um, thoughts on your chronobiological clock and 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 the medical aspects of napping, um, and also coffee, which are one of our other favorite subjects at the Wall Street Journal. Um, so yeah, he had a lot, a lot to say. Um, he's a big advocate of naps, as we all should be, it turns out. And he said something about naps being either voluntary or involuntary. What's the difference between the two of those? And also, what did he have to say about sleep more generally? I mean, oh, do we need naps because we're not getting enough sleep? Or do we need naps so, in addition to the sleep we should already have? So there's a couple things. Is I mean, most of us in the in the modern world, we tend to be sleep deprived. We're supposed to get, you know, it varies between seven and ten hours, depending on which doctor you ask. But most of us aren't building in the seven hours of sleep. That means getting into bed, you know, a half an hour before you go to sleep, right? So you get full seven hours of sleep. Um, and most of us just don't have that kind of time. So we're we're sleep deprived. We build up the sleep debt. We're tired, and so a nap can alleviate that. Even a short nap can alleviate that. So if you're super-duper um, sleep-deprived, you will, rather than taking off your clothes and getting into bed and, and building a nap into your day, you'll have what's called an involuntary nap, and you'll just fall asleep at your desk or on the train or while driving your car, God forbid. Um, so, you know, you want to try and avoid sleep debt for sure. That's like the main thing. But then also there's this genetic component, which we can get to later, um, which is not well understood, but it appears as though we are programmed evolutionarily to want to nap kind of after lunch and at have, the height of the heat. Talk about that genetic component. Let's talk about that right now, Heidi. So the theory is that, you know, at the height of the day when, you know, most of civilization evolved around the equator where it's super hot during the day, the animals are not out there napping. So it's a safe time to go take a break. Um, so, so there seems to be this window after lunch, before dinner, there's a question of where exactly it falls, but where your, your biological, your evolutionary clock wants you to just chill out, which is sort of why at four o'clock we all need a cup of coffee, right? We get yep. tired or sugar, you know, we need something to boost us. So, you know, they're not totally sure why, but the thinking is that, yeah, during, for most of humanity, you know, those were safe hours to sleep and you couldn't hunt and you couldn't really forage. It was really hot. And so it was a good time to sleep. And then when it got dark, you went to sleep. And when it got light, you woke up. That makes complete sense. And any of us who spend time when we're on vacations, we've been to the beach all day. I mean, we, we know that that cycle kicks in hard yeah, at, exactly. at four o'clock. Yeah. Hot, you fall asleep. And, and sometimes you wake up if you, if you were awoken by an alarm or you didn't get, you didn't catch up all of your sleep debt and fill your sleep tank all the way. Um, you might feel a little bit groggy. And so a lot of people don't like that, which is why a lot of people choose not to nap because they don't feel great when they wake up. They feel like they're not a hundred percent. So this is where coffee comes in. 
Yep, but yep. Uh, but a lot of people will avoid a nap because they don't like that groggy feeling. They just don't feel like they can perform. Right. And so how exactly do we doze off? Because this, I thought, was the most interesting part of the piece. I know, right? So fascinating. So it's very biological. So your muscles start to relax. So let's say you're you're standing up on a train holding onto the bar in the middle there. So then your arms start to lose their um, control and they relax and then your hands relax and then your eyelids go and then your neck goes, right? So then your head falls over and then you jerk up. Okay, so this is terrible because your brain does not go into um, a good deep sleep and you're just, it's almost like a disturbed night of sleep. You're just like falling and rising and falling and rising. You can imagine how it does kind of feel amazing though, that feeling of falling into a deep sleep when you're not supposed to. There's some, some like guilt, delicious guilt built into that, but it's not, it's not going to give you the replenish your sleep debt the way that a voluntary nap where you're laying down is going to, it's not going to do that for you. Well, I love the part here where you say that triggers the part of your brain that feels you're falling. That's, of course, where the neck goes, which wakes you up. I mean, how many times yeah. are we woken up by the nap we're almost involuntarily pushed into by our exhaustion? Or how about in a meeting? <laughs> That's even more exciting. That's the worst. <laughs> that Sunglasses. is the worst. That is. So So, what's the best way, the, the very best way to take a nap? So it's funny because the way that we work now, I don't know what your office is like, but typically offices now are open plan. And even those that are fortunate enough to have an office, they tend to be glassy. So this is not a good way to take a nap because you, we're not sure why. I think it has to do with, you know, our animal instinct, but you need to be in a safe place. So he was talking actually about homeless people and how it's really so sad to see people sleeping on a park bench because it's not a safe environment to sleep in and so they're probably not getting quality sleep um, and so are a little bit in a zone all the time um, but so you want to be in a obviously in a cool place because you sleep best when it's like in the 60s um, you know ideally you want to be you want to be prone because when you're laying down um, your body can the, all those muscles can relax and your head's not going to fall over and wake you up and you want to be in a dark space that, you know, no one's watching you. So you feel safe. So a glassy office is not a great place. It used to be that, um, like seeing a madman or whatever, and, you know, you could just close the door, lay down on your couch and take a 15 minute nap and no, just say, you know, don't interrupt me for 15 minutes. And it was totally fine. That's kind of looked upon as lazy now. And it's not that way in all cultures. You know, in Japan, they're still okay with naps. The siesta is still a big thing in, in um, Spanish speaking countries. Um, and the way that we know that taking a mid afternoon nap is good, um, is that places like, um, China, when they industrialized, they forbade, um, they forbade the nap and the productivity didn't go up. So there's, there's this, they call it a sleep wake window that opens up in the afternoon and your it's a harmonic gate in your circadian rhythm and it just opens up. And, and so if you can find, uh, I don't know, a secret room in your office, where you can shut and lock the door, set your phone alarm for like 15, 20 minutes. And I, I promise you, you will feel refreshed. Even if you don't totally fall asleep, you'll feel refreshed. You can have a cup of coffee after, um, and then you'll, you should be a hundred percent. And have you seen these places, Heidi, at the airport now around American airports where you can like basically go in and take a nap? Have you seen Yes, those? I've seen these pods, right? Yeah, they're little pods, and they're trying to create that cool space where you can be prone, and it's dark, and it's you're by yourself. Japanese. 
And they're they're like in 15-minute increments, which is really kind of all you need. Yep. Isn't that amazing? I mean, you could just do 15 minutes and you can feel much better. Well, I love what Dr. Dingy said. He said, quote, being awake is like carrying a bag on your back. The longer you're awake, the more bricks you add, he says. And when you take a nap, you remove some of those bricks. And by the way, Dr. Dingy, that's the uh, professor you talked at the University of Pennsylvania's Perlman School of Medicine. His book is Sleep and Alertness, Chronobiological, Behavioral, and Medical Aspects of Napping. So he wrote a whole book on this. He wrote a whole book Exactly. (laughs) Sitting at a bookstore near you, Heidi. Yeah, I'm sure. I think you have to buy it on Amazon used. I think it may be out of print. But he's written other books as well and lots of papers. But he's so into this subject. And we talked for at least an hour. Um, but he was, we were asking, you know, is there a way that employers can, can help, uh, you know, their, their employees to have this built in? And he said, you know, employers are really all about their profits, their bottom line. And so, you know, I've seen it at, you've seen it at Google. You know, they have those pods. Yep. So some forward-thinking um, corporations do have that, but I do think there is still um, a stigma attached to taking a nap in the middle of the day. And if we can just somehow societally remove that stigma, we would have a much more productive society. We would be less hangry, grumpy, have nicer exchanges. Um, you know, work life would be better balanced. Um, and free coffee. Well, here at Our American Stories, the staff has free coffee and they can nap anytime, especially when we're doing the show. Heidi, thanks so much for joining <laughs> us as always. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you. Go have your 15-minute nap after lunch. Oh, I will. And Heidi Mitchell, as always, the burning question from the Wall Street Journal. This is Our American Stories. our american stories and jesse i'm not sure what that music is but it sounds like something off the shaft or superfly soundtrack the visioneers oh the visioneers i love it i love it it sounds like something that our our friend trenton uh, quentin not trenton quentin tarantino it's very california it is very california love it recently we came across an article at the wall street journal about a guy named kevin who had established his own micronation within the state of nevada a micronation is an entity that claims to be an independent nation or state, but is not recognized by world governments or major international organizations. We just had to get to the bottom of this bottom of this story, and there was no one else on the crew who could do a better job than Jesse. I'm just outside of a small town called Dayton, Nevada, just south of Reno, to visit with a man named Kevin Baugh. Kevin is what you might call a crazy person. You're about to find out why. You see, a long time ago, our friend Kevin here decided it might be a good idea to declare himself the president of Molossia. What is Molossia, you might ask? Well, let's ask His Excellency ourselves. Molossia is a micronation. Basically, it's a a tiny self-declared country. Uh, We sort of see it as a 
um, expression, self-expression, uh, creativity, kind of almost like an art project, but not quite. But also, we want to have everything in Malasia that a regular country would have. That's why we have our own post office, phone system, and so forth like that. Um, Malasia was originally founded uh, in 1977. Uh, my friend James and I, uh, we saw a movie called The Mouse That Roared uh, with Peter Sellers, and we were really struck by the imagination and creativity and the idea of that, mo of that movie. So we decided when we wanted to have our own country, which was called the Grand Republic of Volstein. And he, at that time, and um, he was king. I was prime minister, but then he moved on, went to a different school, but I stayed with it over the years. And then once we obtained this property here uh, in northern Nevada, it was really natural to raise the flag and declare it to be a uh, property of our sovereign nation, Malasia. Now, the Republic of Malasia claims to be a sovereign, independent nation state completely surrounded by the United States. And as a result, it's adopted a system of government recognizably similar in structure to that of a sovereign state. I thought we were an autonomous collective. You're fooling yourself. We're living in a dictatorship. A self-perpetuating autocracy in which the working classes... Oh, there get... you go, bringing class into it again. That's what it's all about. If only people would... Please. Can someone move to Malasia or apply for citizenship? Well, actually, no, we do not um, allow other people to move in and become, become citizens of Malasia. It's really kind of a family nation, if you will. Uh, we have a lot of people that would like to move here. Um, surprisingly, actually, from the Middle East... It, we have a lot of inquiries, uh, people who want to come here on a regular basis. I, I'll get about a half a dozen a week of folks that want to move here. I think partially because they would like to you know, come into the U.S. They see this as a way to get here. But Malasia is only open to uh, really our current citizens and our family members. Does the United States government care that you've declared yourself a sovereign nation? The U.S. has never really had a problem with Malasia, at least as far as I know. I'm sure they snoop around our website because they tend to do that. But at any rate, they don't really care what we do because we are... Uh, I guess, again, they see it sort of as a, you know, self-expression kind of thing, you know, personal freedom and private property and all that kind of stuff. And that's fine. They leave us alone. Uh, we do pay taxes, but we call it foreign aid. So we give foreign aid to the U.S. to uh, help prop them up. And you've seen their roads, so you see they need all the help they can get. Uh, this guy is absolutely nuts, but I thought he seemed rather harmless. That is until he explained to me that he's been at war with East Germany for some time now. Well, the war with East Germany started back in 1983. Uh, it's really back in the midst of times because I don't honestly remember even starting this war. But at the time I was the prime minister, it was the Grand Republic of Wolstein at that time, and I was the prime minister, and I was also serving with the U.S. Army in Europe back in the Cold War days. So every now and again, they would roast us up out of our sleep, and we'd have to jump in our tanks and go, you know, stand a, po a post because it was, you know, the time when you had to sort of do that. Uh, in November of, of 83, uh, when I was still prime minister, I guess I was rusted out of my sleep one too many times, so I decided to declare war on East Germany. And I have a nice little war certificate hanging up on the wall right there. I think that's it. Anyway, um, then I forgot all about it. And then a few years ago, I was reading through my records, and I pulled this thing out. I said, well, that's kind of cute. That's neat. And I happened to do a little research and discovered that East Germany still exists in the form of a tiny island off the coast of Cuba. It's called Ernst Tailman Island, and it was given by Cuba to East Germany back in 1970-something, three, uh -huh. I think. Uh, Fidel Castro gave it to the, to the yeah. East Germany. Um, I guess it was sort of a symbolic thing, but essentially it became East German territory. They have a little statue, a statue there on there and so forth, and it was never addressed in the Unification Treaty. So it was sort of like one of those limbo kind of things. 
Uh, so I guess we're still at war with East Germany. At least that's how we're going with it. Now there's nobody on this island. It's uninhabited except for marine iguanas. So uh, <laughs> I guess those would be the only existing East Germans out there are marine iguanas. Yes. And because we can't go there, because we are still subject, unfortunately, to U.S. You know, restrictions of traveling to Cuba, we can't really you know, engage in peace with the marine iguanas there. And uh, so we will probably be at war with East Germany forever, for as long as at least the embargo goes on. We would like to go there someday. It looks like a really pretty place. Making peace with marine iguanas. I mean, look at this guy. He's dressed up like a war general, strutting around his property like Fidel Castro. And in the middle of all this, he somehow managed to land himself a wife. Or as he calls her, the first lady. I met the first lady uh, through uh, MySpace, which is really not that popular anymore, but it was a big thing back a few years ago. And uh, we had both been to the same concert, of all things. And I noticed her, she noticed me, kind of thing. And uh, we sort of started communicating that way, and she, I didn't really present myself as kind of like a, as a, like a separate thing. It was my civilian me, my non-president me, and then the president me. I didn't really present myself as the president, just as the guy down the road. But, you know, being a smart lady, and she is, uh, she Googled me and figured out <laughs> that I was, in fact, the president of the country, and she liked that. She thought it was a pretty cool idea. So she came into our relationship, and it's been almost five years now, came into our relationship knowing that I was the president of the country and very happy with it. And uh, she's had a good time with it ever since. What are some of, like, your house rules or laws, I guess you would call them? Uh, like all countries, Malaysia uh, has its own customs, uh, standards, and there are certain things that can't be brought into the country. Um, they are rather unique because we are a rather unique country. Uh, no walruses are allowed in the country. Uh, there was a cartoon strip called Bloom County a few years ago, and one of the opening splash things always was a, always a little sign next to a meadow under a tree. And one time it said, no walruses. And my, my uh, number two son and I thought that was pretty funny. So we put that on there. Uh, no catfish can be brought in the country. It's not like we have a problem with catfish here in Malazi. We're in the desert. But they're banned because we were going to be in FHM Magazine a few years ago. And FHM Magazine bumped us for an article about guys that catch catfish with their hands. They're called noodlers. So that's a couple of things uh, that you can't bring. No plastic bags, bad for the environment. No incandescent light bulbs, also bad for the environment. Uh, because we are a unique country, we do have our own measurement system. It's called uh, the Cokins measurement system. And the uh, basic element that would probably apply to most folks is called the Norton. And this is a Norton. It's my hand. It's about seven inches long. And uh, if you ever have to measure something, you go somewhere, you can use your hands to measure. It's kind of convenient. But we really did that to be unique. We have our own time zone. Uh, we are 39 minutes ahead of Pacific time or 21 behind mountain, whichever way you want to be, be driving. And we, again, did that to be a little bit different. And just a few months after we adopted our own time zone, uh, President Chavez of Venezuela adopted his own, the late President Chavez, adopted his own time zone off by about 15 minutes or something like that. Now, where do you think he got the idea? Right here. Absolutely. So we kind of do our own thing. We have a good time with Malasia. Now, do you, do you always dress like that? I dress like a dictator. Well, I mean, because it's kind of a styling thing to do. But anyway, uh, I wanted to be a little bit different. There are a lot of micronations out there, and almost everybody wants to be a king or a prince or a duke or emperor or something along that line. And I wasn't really feeling like I was royalty. It wasn't my thing. So wanting to be different, we deliberately uh, adopted this is a dictatorship. Malasia is a dictatorship. Kind of handy when I'm sort of the head of the household anyway. It's a family country. And so uh, and we have, you know, have a good time. It's a, it's a benign, benevolent dictatorship. It's a family country, he says. Kevin Vaugh, one of a kind, the micro-nation of Malasia. Look them up, pay them a visit. Your family might be a little upset and confused, especially if they're expecting Disneyland and you took them here. But that's the way it goes sometimes. This is Our American Stories. Uh, thank you for that, Jesse. He has his own time zone. 
We should start that here because I'm always 15 minutes late. I should have my own time zone. And and by the way, was he as was he like a, a just a as crazy off oh, the yeah, air? Pretty much. Just he, bad. Exactly what you heard. Bad out there crazy. Yeah. Nice guy though. Hey, that's what we do here on Our American Stories. And if you know somebody who's a dictator of his own nation, if you're a dictator of your own nation, call, share your story. If you want to be. This is Our American Stories. Kevin. The dictator, the head honcho of Malasia, somewhere in northern Nevada. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, where we bring you stories about music, sports, marriage, work, history, every sphere of American life. And we especially love stories about human freedom and what happens when it's trampled and when it's allowed to flourish. And National Review's Jay Nordlinger wrote just such a story, and it was fantastic. And so we asked him to record it for us. Here's Jay. Article 39 of the Cuban Constitution states the following. Artistic creativity is free as long as its content is not contrary to the revolution. Danilo Maldonado Machado, also known as El Sexto, doesn't obey. He's a Cuban street artist and human rights activist. He has been in and out of prison many times. In 2014, He took two pigs and painted names on them, Fidel and Raul. He was referring to his country's brother dictators, of course. Fidel has since died. Raul is in charge. When he goes, he may well be succeeded by his son, Alejandro. Maldonado had been inspired by Animal Farm, Orwell's novella of 1945. Into the day when pigs own and operate farms everywhere! Obviously, his pigs routine earned him a prison sentence. Maldonado is the very image of the street artist rebel. Tall and thin, funky haircut, tattoos, jewelry, the works. He was born on April 1st, 1983. Like all Cubans, Danilo was propagandized as soon as he reached school age. He and his classmates chanted slogans such as, We will be like Che, meaning Che Guevara, of course. When they learned to read, they didn't see sentences like, See, spot, run. They saw, Fidel is in the plaza, or Fidel is happy. And of course... TV, radio, and newspapers conveyed hardly anything but propaganda. Danilo liked to draw, and something strange happened when he was nine. He drew a picture of Fidel Castro in his army fatigues, but with a monkey head. When his mother saw it, she was horrified. She took it from him, threw it away, and admonished him never to draw anything like that again. The child was taken aback. His mother had always liked his drawings before. Why was she so afraid of this one simple drawing? Her son told me, That started a little revolution in my mind. When he was 18, he was conscripted into the military, like everyone else. On the base, 
he saw things he had never seen before. Goods, supplies, you know, stuff. He stole some of it. For this, he was sentenced to six years in prison. He served three. When he got out, he had an urge to satirize, to satirize every government campaign, to puncture the atmosphere of fear and propaganda. That's how he got his nickname, El Sexto. The government was hailing the Cuban Five, as they're known, a group of five spies in the United States. The government was constantly celebrating these men as heroes. So Maldonado, tongue-in-cheek, started calling himself El Sexto, meaning the Sixth. He also spray-painted graffiti in the capital city, Havana, signing them with his new nickname. In one instance, he painted this statement, Peace, Love, Without Fear. This caused a buzz. Fear is the ruling emotion in Cuba, as in police states everywhere. On a bus, Maldonado overheard people talking about him. Who is El Sexto, they said. Also, he overheard police talking about him. They were vowing to get these guys, these guys who were waging this graffiti campaign. They thought that El Sexto had to be more than one person. For years, Maldonado has had support from ordinary people, usually stated in whispers. He has support even among policemen, but most of the agents do their job, which includes harassing Maldonado, keeping him out of public spaces, and confiscating his property. Once, Maldonado wore a t-shirt with the image of Laura Poyan on it. She was the leader of the Ladies in White, the human rights group in Cuba. She died in 2011 under suspicious circumstances. The police ripped the shirt off Maldonado. They also took away his art materials. So, as he puts it, he used the one medium left to him, his body. He acquired a tattoo of Poyan and of Oswaldo Paya, another democracy leader in Cuba, killed by the regime in 2011. Maldonado, like the people painted on his body, is one of those irrepressible dissidents. Today, the United States of America is changing its relationship with the people of Cuba. In December 2014, President Obama announced his opening to Cuba. If international media were going to be paying more attention to Cuba, Maldonado thought it was a good time for an imaginative, daring performance. His inspiration was Animal Farm. Read it to me. Which depicts a place where, quote, All animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. More equal than others? Ever since it was written, people trapped in totalitarian societies have been amazed by Animal Farm, by its accuracy above all. In Cuba, Maldonado took his two pigs, females as it happened, and gave them those famous names, Fidel and Raul. His plan was to take them to Central Park in Havana and put on a show. Rebellion en la Granja, or Rebellion on the Farm, which is how Orwell's novella is known in Spanish. Maldonado knew he would be arrested and imprisoned. His aim was to show the world that freedom of expression in Cuba was denied. He never made it to the park. They arrested him on the way. Maldonado was charged with disorderly conduct, but he was never given a trial. He was sentenced to three years. Three years for two pigs, as his supporters put it. 
The prison was Valle Grande, where he was confined with common criminals as dissidents are in Cuba. Amnesty International declared Maldonado a prisoner of conscience. There came a time when the prisoners did not have water, and that led Maldonado to stage a hunger strike. He also had this thought. It was my activism that got me in here, and it will be activism that gets me out. He considered his hunger strike a kind of performance art. He went without food for 24 days. Was he prepared to die? Yes, he says, although he did not think it would come to that. He figured he was too well known for the regime to let die. The regime wouldn't want the publicity. Maldonado's hunger strike garnered international attention and led to international pressure on the Castro dictatorship. They relented, releasing Maldonado on October 20, 2015. His jailers had some parting words for him. Stay out of trouble. He refuses. He wants to, quote, stretch the limits of what's possible. Why? He answered the way dissidents usually do when I asked them this question. He said, I don't know. In the past, Maldonado tried to live a normal life, but found he couldn't. He must strike little artistic blows against the dictatorship, or try to. His goal is to, quote, break the pattern of brainwashing in people. He wants to counter the government's incessant propaganda. He says he thinks like a publicist. What can I do to catch people's attention and wake them up a little? He says that communism is like slavery, quote, People are told to be grateful for what little they're given by their masters. They're also told that life would be wretched for them elsewhere or under a different system. I asked him, why do they let you travel? He said, I don't know. And then with a grin, maybe they think I'll never come back. Maldonado was more troubled of them at home than abroad. Whatever the dangers in Cuba, he has no desire to go into exile because, quote, I want to be part of change in Cuba. I see America and the American dream, and I want to implant that spirit in Cuba to have a Cuban dream, which is freedom. I asked him a standard question. Is there something you wish people could know, especially outsiders, foreigners? He had an immediate answer. Che Guevara was a murderer. He wasn't a hero. Also, Raul and Fidel are murderers, not legitimate authorities, not legitimate heads of state. They're there by force, not by the will of the people. Maldonado flew from Havana to Paris. Sitting next to him was a man wearing a chase shirt, a foreigner, probably a Frenchman. Maldonado wanted to explain to the man about Guevara, but they did not have a language in common. Maldonado says he can excuse Cubans who wear chase shirts, They've been propagandized all their lives. He has a much harder time excusing men and women from free societies. Before he and I left each other, I told El Sexto that I considered him something of a miracle. When I was growing up in Ann Arbor, Michigan, the cool kids like him, the artists and rebels with funky hair, tattoos, jewelry, and so on, they wore chase shirts. They were pro-Castro. And here... The coolest kid on the block is El Sexto, who is anti-Castro, pro-democracy, anti-Che. I said to him, I'm so glad you exist. He grinned. And we're grinning here. 
almost ear to ear, everyone in the studio. And thanks so much for that writing, Jay. And what a story. And what an American story, bringing American values of freedom and love to a place, well, run by dictators for the last half century, even more. This is Lee Habib, El Sexto's story, here on Our American Story. Yeah.